From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. UN Bonn is often called the UN Sustainability Hub. Why? Because all of the UN organizations that have their offices here work towards shaping a sustainable future by achieving the so-called Sustainable Development Goals, or simply SDGs. In case you haven't heard about the SDGs, they were set up in 2015 as a blueprint towards a better future. In total, there are 17 goals, including, for instance, goal number one, no poverty, and goal number five, gender equality, and the aim is to achieve them all by 2030. One of the UN organizations on our campus is all about raising awareness of the SDGs, the UN SDG Action Campaign. And one way that it makes aware of the SDGs is the annual SDG Global Festival of Action. We invited Hannah Messenger, the SDG Action Campaign's global event strategist, to tell us more about the festival. Hi, Hannah. How are you today? Could you tell us what the UN SDG Action Campaign is? Yeah, of course. So the UN SDG Action Campaign is a special initiative of the UN Secretary General and is hosted by the Executive Office of UNDP. So the campaign was actually established to inspire people and organisations from all backgrounds and every part of the world to take actions to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, whilst also holding decision makers to account for progress society-wide. Our mandate is to broaden, scale and sustain a global movement of people taking action to achieve the goals. So the way that we actually approach this is we have a three-pillared strategy where we aim to inspire people to do things differently, to think about things differently, to approach things differently. We look to mobilize people to take action together um, to impact any sphere of influence they have available to them. And we look to connect different actors from different regions of the world, from different sectors, from different disciplines, so that together we are far mightier as a whole than the sum of our parts. Every year, the SDG Global Festival of Action takes place in Bonn and it is one of the biggest UN events in the city. The last festival had to take place digitally due to COVID-19 and had over 24,000 participants. Can you tell us what the festival is about? Yeah, of course. So the SDG Global Festival of Action is the UN SDG Action Campaign's flagship convening moment. It's a widely anticipated annual event powered by the campaign with the support of the German federal government and partners from all sectors and regions from across the world. Its overall aim is to find new ways to inspire and accelerate action to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. So how do we actually approach this? We begun shaping the festival in 2017 when we saw the real need to create a moment in time where anybody that's engaged in the goals, regardless of whether they are a policymaker, an activist, an academic, they're from the media, a social entrepreneur, a young change maker, Anybody can find a place within this festival where they can learn, they can share skills, they can scale up their own ideas, they can forge networks and partnerships. So the aim really is to provide an entry point to the conversation, whether you're an expert or a newcomer, is to provide the breeding ground for ideas and solutions, and is to provide the space to inspire people 
to help them to learn how to mobilize together and to connect them with the people that they most need to create greater impact in the work that they're doing. So the way that we actually approach this, I think the curation is just as important as the output. Um, as within the SDG Action campaign, we really feel that crowdsource ideas and partnerships are critical for us to achieving the success of the goals. We have solution holders in every corner of the world at every level of society. So through the curation of the festival, we call out to the SDG Action community and we invite them to share with us their solutions, their ideas, their expertise, their speaker ideas. We have everything from immersive exhibits through to musical performances. We have live stages where people can pitch solutions and ideas and we have those heavy hitting policy discussions where we can share the latest insights from the UN and from government. So it really is the place that you come to learn, to grow, to connect and to build projects together. But in order to do that, we actually have partners from across the world that feed into that process. So it's very much a shared risk and reward. The festival belongs to each and every participant and every partner. And only together can we actually continue to grow the global movement. At the festival, the SDG Action Awards are given to those who inspire, mobilize and connect for the global goals. Who were the winners of the SDG Action Awards this spring and why were they selected? So the SDG Action Awards is a very special project. This is our opportunity to find incredible innovation, solutions and approaches that are being shaped and developed every single day across the world. So throughout the application process, we in turn have the opportunity to be inspired by this incredible groundswell of action. The aim of the awards is to shine a spotlight on the pioneers, the trailblazers, the change makers, to find the campaigns, the innovations and the approaches that have demonstrable impacts, that have transformative approaches and that have the potential to really go to scale, whether that's within the specific region or community or could be applied to different contexts. So those are actually the three areas of criteria that the awards are judged on. We look for impact, approach and potential to go to scale. So throughout the awards process, we launched an open call for applications in March of 2020 and we were absolutely overwhelmed. Despite the challenges of the pandemic, we received over 2,000 incredible applications across all of these categories. People applied from far and wide to show how they're mobilising large numbers of individuals and organisations to take action for the goals. They applied to show how they are inspiring people to shift behaviours and policies for the achievement of the 2030 Agenda. And they applied to show how they are connecting partners to increase progress on the goals while strengthening dialogue and trust between people and institutions at all levels. So despite the emergence and challenges of the ongoing pandemic, the 2020 finalists and the honourable mentions, all of them had shown resilience and adaptability in both addressing the global health crisis and its devastating impact on people's lives, but whilst also maintaining the momentum we need to bring us closer to achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. This brings us through to the ceremony at the SDG Global Festival of Action. First of all, all applications underwent a technical review and three finalists were selected in each of the categories, which then went to an external multidisciplinary judging panel. So we held the SDG Action Awards ceremony live as part of the festival programme. And this is where we awarded the winners of each category. So for the Inspire category, we were so proud to award an organisation called Science TV. 
So they improve the social, economic and talent development of people with disabilities through inclusive broadcasting and assistive technology. The judges were delighted to see how individuals stepping up and impacting the lives of people living with disabilities as it felt so often like they were being left behind by many modern media formats. They were the winners of the Inspire category. We then had the Connect category, and for this category, we awarded Next Wave Plastics. So they created the first ever global network transforming supply chains to keep plastic out of the ocean. So in just two years of this initiative, they collectively prevented 1,300 metric tons of plastic from entering the ocean, which I'm sure you can agree is an incredible achievement. And finally, for our mobilised category, this is one that we're hugely excited about. Um, the award winner for this category was the Sexual Harassment Project, led by Stand to End the Rape. So this initiative actually fights against sexual and gender-based violence in higher education institutions in Nigeria. Now, many people know that work in the Sustainable Development Goals, that we have a few super goals. We don't like to play favourites. But there are some goals that have the power to greatly impact the other goals greater than others, such as climate action. Another super goal is gender equality. So as we can see, the work that Stand to End the Rape do in forging progress on gender equality is hugely beneficial across any of the other goal areas. And that's where we can see a huge impact. So the team's dedicated effort to end sexual harassment in academic institutions, including engaging the public and enabling the agency of survivors in the demand for justice, was truly inspiring. Given their exceptional resilience, leadership and strength in their ability to challenge existing systems, that's why this initiative was awarded. Thank you, Hannah. We will now talk to our second guest, Aluwashon Ayodeji Oshuawabi. She's the executive director of the STIR initiative, which stands for Stand to End Rape. This March, the STIR initiative won the UN SDG Award at the SDG Global Festival of Action. Hi, Ayodeji. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Nigeria today. Hi, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Congratulations again for winning this year's UN SDG Award. Can you tell us more about your initiative? Thank you so much. Um, Stand to End Rape Initiative STIR is a youth-led social justice organization um, that is advancing gender equality and advocating against all forms of sexual and gender-based violence in Nigeria. Over the past seven years, we have been pushing policies that protect the rights of women and girls, whether in public or private spaces, We have been implementing social and behavioral change communication programs like, you know, consent education, community awareness initiatives. We also leverage social media to change people's perspective and perception about women's rights, bodily autonomy and gender equality. But we are mostly known for the support services that we provide to survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. And this ranges from pro bono legal advice and representation medical services, psychosocial and mental health support, um, empowerment initiatives, and in most cases, shelter referral services. So we are a youth-led organization um, in Nigeria, and we're looking forward to a day where women can contribute equitably to society and feel safe while doing that. And uh, policy work is an important aspect of your work. You're currently advocating for a bill on a national level. Can you tell us more about that? So we believe that policy advocacy has like a domino effect. You know, it helps to amplify prevention mechanisms and also helps to get support for those who experience any form of violence. 
And if such policies are implemented nationwide, it protects people not just at the national level, also at the state and community levels. In 2016, we started advocating for the sexual harassment in tertiary institutions prohibition bill. It's a very long name. And basically that bill seeks to you know, protect the rights of students from experiencing any form of harassment by academic and non-academic staff. In Nigeria, the issue of sex for grades is very rampant and that's why we collaborated with the BBC for the Sex for Grades documentary to investigate the issue of sexual harassment and bring it to the fore so that more universities and individuals can push for the adoption of the law at the national level. And as a result of this documentary, the University of Lagos, which is a leading university in Nigeria, um, was forced to set up a sexual harassment policy in August 2019, shortly after we released the Sex for Grades documentary. And, you know, sequel to that as well, the Obafemi Awolowo University also launched a sexual harassment policy in August 2021. Um, another bill that we've been working on is the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act, which was enacted in 2015 by the then president. And now there has been a lot of work ongoing to adopt it at the local level. In 2021, around March, we were in a northern state called Adamawa, where we worked with you know, community leaders, um, religious leaders, non-governmental organizations, and even governmental organizations to put pressure on governments to pass the bill. And the bill was passed into law in September 2021. So overall, we are looking at having policies that protect the most vulnerable amongst us but also serves as a punitive measure for offenders. When reading about STIR, we found that you follow quite a holistic approach. You not only advocate against sexual violence, but you also provide prevention mechanisms and support survivors with social psychological services. How has this approach evolved? So we believe that having a holistic approach is the best way to get complete success towards STIR's vision, which is to end all forms of sexual and gender-based violence. And for us, we believe that violence is in different cycles. And when you don't address all the cycles, one part of the cycle you know, diminishes while the other may be on the increase. So when we have policies, but we don't have support services to help or assist survivors, then there is a gap because there is a policy in place to protect their rights. But when such rights are unfortunately violated, there isn't availability of support for them. So we are looking at, you know, catering to every part of society, whether policy, whether support, whether prevention or awareness, just touching all of the aspects that help us achieve um, an end to rape culture and importantly, to advance, you know, gender equality. So what we've been doing is we've been doing a lot of educational programs for behavioral change, for you know, interest in policies, for increased awareness on availability of support and things like that. And we believe that having that approach can be you know, small in itself, but it creates a, a bigger impact on the long run. So STIR provides both survivor-centered programs and consent classes. Why are both components important? I would say that the context of sexual violence is quite broad and you know, numerous loopholes created you know, subconsciously by cultural beliefs or traditional norms. And so a wholesome approach is needed to kind of stimulate effective change because when you provide survival-centered programs and you're not 
actively educating people on what positive masculinity is, what bodily autonomy is. What you're doing in essence is you're only providing more support to those who have been violated as against amplifying prevention in itself. So as a survivor-centered organization, our goal is to, of course, protect survivors, but importantly, to tackle the behaviors and patterns that perpetrate violence against um, women and girls, and also to encourage active bystanders. And what do I mean by this? People who see violence happen in their locality, in their schools, in their place of work, and just you know ignore it because it doesn't concern me. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people have a better understanding of how their actions and inactions contribute to violence and how you know survivors continue to have cases of violence because someone is perpetrating that violence. So we try to balance those. STIR even has a mental health toolkit which is available on your website. What is in the kit? So during the advent of COVID-19, we realized that we couldn't provide physical services like we would usually do because we had the lockdown in Nigeria, Lagos State to be more precise, and Lagos, Abuja, and I think Ogun State all had lockdown, which means that when people experienced violence, they had to report virtually and receive support virtually. And that was not a sustainable approach for us. So what we decided to do was to launch a mental health toolkit at that crucial time where people who have experienced one form of violence in Nigeria could actually have self-care, right? And this was also very valuable during the NSAS protests because we had so many people who were traumatized by police brutality and needed mental health support. So the toolkit was launched where we had a hotline for people to call in and receive professional mental health therapy. But importantly, the toolkit on the website has information around how to manage mental health conditions like suicide ideation, depression, anxiety, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like a variety of content, right? So it has articles, it has podcasts, it has videos that can watch. It has worksheets and practical activities that serve as, you know, coping mechanisms before the access therapy from a psychologist. So that's really what the Mental Health Toolkit um, is about and why it was important for us to launch it. Yeah, that sounds really innovative and you adapted, I think, very well to the COVID-19 pandemic. Another project you did is that a year ago, Star partnered with BBC News Africa for the documentary Sex for Greats Undercover in West African Universities. Academic institutions in West Africa have increasingly been facing allegations of sexual harassment by lecturers. Can you tell us a bit more about this problem? Sexual harassment is a significant issue in tertiary institutions in Nigeria and across Africa. And, you know, I cannot overemphasize how large this issue is. I mean, it goes back to my parents' generation and the generation before that, you know, acknowledging that they did have sexual harassment during their time but really did not have mechanisms in place to report or seek redress. University lecturers and even non-academic staff of universities are fond of you know, preying on students, especially those who are trying to get into university or those who are trying to graduate. And they threaten these students, you know, um, requesting sex in exchange for marks or sex in exchange for admission or whatever it is. There's always an exchange at play. A survey conducted by World Bank groups 
women in 2018 actually showed that 70% of female graduates from Nigerian tertiary institutions have been sexually harassed. Ethiopia also has a terrible data case study. 78% of their own female students have reported sexual harassment. That shows the scale of the problem, not just in Nigeria, but in Africa. People think that sexual harassment is just, you know, the physical, but it also has the mental torture for students. It has mental health impact where some students who can't undo the pressure have to drop out of school. Some students have to opt, you know, to have extra years in the university because they are refusing sexual advances. And this has a ripple effect. What this means is when they graduate and they don't have good grades from the university, they can't get good jobs. That, you know, really stifles their economic power to provide for themselves and their families. So we're not just dealing with an issue of today, but an issue that will have, you know, multiple effects socially and economically on our society. In 2019, when the BBC had approached us for a partnership for a documentary, we had mentioned that we were also planning something along that line. And we thought the best way to achieve success is through collaboration. So we partnered with them in providing research, resources, survivors who give testimony, lecturers who also give testimony. We facilitated all of that for them and we worked together to produce the documentary. You know, sometimes when we talk about sexual harassment, we only look at the academic institution, but it's also evident in the workplace. In 2020, we conducted a workplace sexual harassment research and we realized that a lot of survivors of sexual harassment in the workplace have had to either leave their place of employment or have had to continue to work with such abusive employers without available support to them. You know, that has made us, you know, really interested in this space to have a policy at the national level to protect students and incoming students alike and also pushing for reforms in the work sector to protect the rights of employees. Yeah, these are very disturbing numbers in the universities, but also at the workplace. But of course, sexual violence at universities or in the workplace is not unique to West Africa. What do you suggest other countries can do about it? I would say that we need to build institutions with mandatory checks and prevention mechanisms to tackle this problem so as to make them accountable for their actions. For instance, we have the Nigerian Universities Commission the NUC, and they accreditate universities, basically. But sexual harassment policy or structures are not one of the matrix that they use to accredit universities in Nigeria. So I think that's something that could be done. Checking universities that have policies regularly, how effective are those policies, how effective are the systems established, doing random or sample size survey amongst students to see if they've had any cases of sexual harassment or if they know of a sexual harassment case, you know, what has been done, what did the university do, things like that. And for Nigeria, for instance, the sexual harassment policy already establishes what should be done in the case of sexual harassment. So what NUC needs to do basically is to check, does every university in Nigeria have this structure in place? How effective and sustainable are these structures and how many cases of sexual harassment have been reported in those universities and how many abusive lecturers or non-academic staff have been fired and currently in court or currently in jail? You know, because the idea is that people in those institutions need to feel safe. 
and the governmental structures or institutions have a huge role to play in that. Even in the kind of lecturers or staff being employed, there is no check and balance. You can have a lecturer who is fired from this university for abusing a student or even a fellow staff, and you have the lecturer in another geopolitical zone working as a lecturer. There is no one checking if these people are not cross-posting across different universities in the country. So I think these are the measures that can be put in place to ensure that we have a safer society for students. Sexual violence is a very tough topic. What do you find most rewarding about your work? Working in this space, for instance, has been rewarding for me because it helps me to help other people. The fact that I can help other people get support or assistance is extremely rewarding for me. But I would say the most rewarding so far has been that the survivors that we provide services to coming back to the organization to pay it forward, either as volunteers or as donors, it's just an amazing experience that those we've been able to assist see value in the work that we do and also want to contribute their own quota to helping us advance and reaching more survivors like themselves. Well, I think your work is very inspiring to the survivors, but also to the UN SDG Action Campaign, where you won the award this year. How did you first hear about the SDG Action Campaign? Thank you so much for the kind words. I heard about the SDG Action Campaign in 2019 because a Nigerian NGO had won during the SDG Festival Awards. So I read up about the SDG Action Campaign and got interested in the actions because it was you know, in line with the Sustainable Development Goals which I am actively working around. So I wanted to, you know, be in touch with them, understand their programming, you know, participate in their events and, and things like that. So when the call for 2020 was open, I was a bit hesitant in the first place, you know, to participate in it. But we then decided to enter for the awards, you know, past the first stage. And then, you know, as a finalist during the award, we announced the winner. Um, it, was, it was a great experience. What was it like to receive the award? It was a great experience. It just feels good for our work to be recognized on such global stage and to be able to show what a Nigerian um, organization is doing to advance the SDGs. And it also helps us to you know, project our work to a larger audience you know, for partnerships, for support, for funding, you know, whatever it is that we can do with other organizations. And also an opportunity for others to learn from our work and for us also learn from other people's work. So if anyone is working in the area of sexual harassment, they can pick one or two strategies from what we have done and imbibe it into their own work or apply it you know, to their strategies. And we can also get to learn from them. So it felt really good that we won the award as a Nigerian organization, as a youth-led organization because all the other finalists were amazing. We just feel really honored to have won the award for Sexual Harassment Project. Because of COVID-19, the SCG Global Festival of Action was entirely digital. Usually it takes place in Bonn every year and is one of the biggest UN events in the city. We would have loved to meet you in person and show you the city. However, the digital festival was still really special. What was your favorite part? The highlight for me from the festival was the lightning talk. I mean, every part of the festival was great. I just really connected with the lightning talk because I gave a lightning talk. So I was interested in listening to other people's you know, conversation. 
and it was just great to hear about their projects, their ideas, how people think of things differently. It was inspirational, it was educative, and I was able to pick one or two action points, you know, for STEM, what we can do going forward. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed the lightning talk. And what is next for the STIR initiative? STIR is hoping to do a couple of things. So the first thing is we want to expand into other countries. You know, receive messages from people saying, we love what you do. We don't have something like this in our country. Could you replicate your services and programs in our country? And we've, you know, identified countries with similar statistics like Nigeria has. So we're looking to expand into those countries. Kenya, to, to be more precise, we're very interested in working in Kenya. We're also transitioning fully into a social enterprise for sustainable growth. We want to be able to earn income and reinvest the income into our services. So we're not heavily reliant on grants and donations, which are great, by the way. You know, we survive currently on donations and grants, but as an organization that is looking forward into the future, we want to be able to have consulting services for organizations where we do research, you know, we do trainings, you know, programs, reintegration services for clients, but we would continue to advocate for the policies that we're working on, continue to expand on our programs or scale up the impact of our programs and provide our pro bono services to survivors. That would always be a priority for us. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Nigeria. You're actually currently at a hospital where STIR is giving a training to health workers. So thank you in particular for joining us from your work trip. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside UN Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monia Sauvager. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind UN Bonn. To find out more about UN Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind UN Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, we are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.